0: Hello! Now one of the big conversation topics that comes up when talking about how to create a sustainable home is solar energy and whether it's worthwhile to install a solar system in your home. And so that's what this episode and the next one is all about. What do you need to know about solar energy and how to know a solar system will be worthwhile for your renovation or building project. So let's dive in. So join me now. When I started creating the outline for this season eight of the podcast, A Simple Guide to a Sustainable Home, I knew that solar energy needed to be part of the conversation. But frankly, I didn't actually know how to best bring this information to you The reason was mainly this, there is so much information out there about solar, solar energy, solar power, solar systems, and yet you can get so much conflicting advice about this. And I know this personally, we've actually been considering a solar uh, system for our own home for the last couple of years, and every installer that we speak to has a different recommendation or idea about what to choose, what not to use, what to be aware of, and how big a system to install and how to connect it all up, whether to go off grid, all of these types of things. And they all come with very different Uh, requirements different systems different space requirements and very different price tags and so I knew I needed to find impartial and independent advice not an installer not an energy company you know so I was you know looking for some time to find somebody that I could speak to that would give relatable uh, understandable advice when it comes to solar energy and I was really excited to find positive charge Uh, They're a Victorian-based program and they're part of the Moreland Energy Foundation Limited. So let me tell you more about them. So as I said, Positive Charge is a program of the Moreland Energy Foundation Limited and the Moreland Energy Foundation Limited or MEFL is a not-for-profit organization committed to tackling climate change. Now, MEFL is an independent organization. They're dedicated to tackling climate change and committed to accelerating the energy transition by empowering communities to really take action. They work hard to ensure that communities play a meaningful part and that no one gets left behind. They're a trusted educator, a partner, advisor and a service provider and they see that their job is to build partnerships that demonstrate what's possible and to give the right advice and make sure that people have access to information and technology they need to take action. They sound like my kind of people when I read this because that's the kind of premise that Undercover Architect operates on as well. and, you know, MEFL's customers include councils, businesses, schools, community groups, and members of the community, which means you, the UA community. MEFL offer trustworthy, up-to-date energy and solar advice and Through their program, Positive Charge, they can actually link households and businesses to independently assessed providers of energy efficiency and renewable energy products and services to reduce carbon emissions. So Positive Charge will offer advice, regardless of of whether or not you know, you request a quote uh, so that you can talk through your ideas and plans whatever stage you are at. And unlike other brokers, there are lots of companies out there acting as brokers for solar um, system suppliers. But MEFL and Positive Charge, they actually – Work with suppliers only after conducting a thorough procurement process uh, so that you can actually be confident that you're getting high quality products and services at a good price through a company that you can trust. And so Positive Charge, they'll be on hand to support you along the way if needed. And I found Positive Charge on the Sustainable Home Hub, which is a website that I'm also on. Uh, It's the brainchild and business of Helen Edwards, who's going to be a guest on the podcast soon. And there's some great businesses in there. Uh, that are all you know wrapped around this idea of creating a sustainable home, and I was really excited to see that Positive Charge as a program was an, a way of gathering and gaining independent support when you're looking at selecting a solar system uh, for your for your home and determining whether it's going to be a good fit for your pro, for your renovation or your building project, and the kinds of information to know and to really understand when you're speaking to installers and to be able to connect you with reputable installers that have been through some type of audit process. Analysis. Now I had the great pleasure in this and the next episode of the podcast talking to Lucy Best, who is the community engagement lead for MEFL. Lucy actually started with MEFL as community outreach worker on the Moorland Solar City Project. And as part of this role, Lucy worked directly with the community in engagement, education and strategy. Lucy manages community engagement and communications for MEFL, including the Positive Charge and the Our Energy Future programs, which provide advice on renewable energy and energy efficiency products to community members and councils as I said. So Lucy regularly delivers workshops and also information sessions to a range of communities including uh, small to medium enterprises, schools, you know, community groups, general interest and environmental groups and also council staff and she plans and coordinates the outreach and the promotional activity for Positive Charge as well. And she's had other roles. She's uh, worked as a teacher, a photographer, an event planner, a project manager. Um, and she's she has said herself how passionate she is about renewable energy and about giving people access to really great information when it comes to making choices about renewable energy for their home. Now, Lucy is one clever bunny. You'll soon see this as she starts to answer questions in the podcast. And when it, you know, it's, this is about, you know, really helping us be more informed and... Uh, you know knowing what we need to know about solar energy the kinds of questions that we need to ask and she really taught me a thing or two uh, about the type of motivation to have when putting solar on your roof and how to think about it generally as well um, in terms of advancement for community and for um, environmental change as well as how it can impact your budget overall so Because this was such a meaty episode, as I said earlier, it was full of great advice and knowledge. I didn't want to clip it down to just be one episode. I've made it two parts. So in this first episode, Lucy and I, we talk about the components of a solar energy system, you know, what the different components are, how they work and how they physically get power from the sun to drive the various bits and pieces that require electricity in your home. She also helps us understand how to work out how big a system you'll need. And she talks about the difference between panels as well. So Lucy actually shares some key tips to assess their power and potential and what to examine uh, in the fine print of uh, installer information. And what to know about your roof space as well and the power use overall of your home so that you can be really informed about what you're choosing. We talk about the inverter and she actually calls the inverter the brains of the system. And from our own personal research, when we've been looking at solar power systems for our home, what we found that um, was that the inverter is actually the thing that it's worthwhile investing in quality in. It actually can make a difference. And so Lucy shares some really great advice about the inverter and what to look out for in that in in that choice. And we also talk about batteries, okay? And when going off grid is worthwhile. And you know it may surprise you because there may be some things that you're not aware of when it comes to choosing a battery system. How self sufficient that battery system actually might be. What you need to pick when you're if you're wanting a completely off the grid system um, because you may not be as off the grid as you think. Now this conversation is packed full of great information and you might be surprised at how accessible solar is and you know, it's no longer an out there technology. This is something that's making such radical advancements um, on a really at a really rapid rate. And it's far more affordable than you think as well. The payback periods have reduced dramatically. And it's really about how you choose your system, how you assess it, and also how you use energy in your home generally. Okay. So I really do hope that you enjoy this interview. Let's dive in. Lucy, it's fantastic to have you here on the Undercover Architect podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that the UA community always has lots of questions when it comes to solar energy and solar power and what they need to know when they're thinking about including it in their renovation or their building project. Can you actually explain to me what are the components that are included in a solar energy system, all of the bits and pieces that go together and you know, sort of what role do they each perform in getting power from the sun to into your house, basically?
1: Yep, um, so the, so the, obviously the, the components that everyone sees sitting on people's roofs are the panels, um, and they are what absorbs the light and turns the photons into energy. Um, and I sort of think of them as the muscle. So they're the, they're the bit that captures the sun. And then the brains is the inverter. So the inverter is the bit that manages the voltage. It makes sure that because the panels get DC power and we use AC in our home. So the inverter converts the power, manages the voltage, keeps us safe. Then, of course, there's panels. I mean, so frames, depending on how, what your roof is made of, how it's fixed to the roof. If it's a tile roof, there'll be a frame attached to the tiles and the panels are attached to the frame. If it's a colour bond roof, then the panels are attached directly to the roof. Uh, There's the wiring and um, that that regulation has changed around the wiring in the last 10 years or so, but it's, it's compliant. There's regulations around that and you get your certificate of compliance at the end. Then depending on what kind of a system you have set up, so as I I said, the inverter is the brains. Most systems have one inverter, so um, it's what's called a string design, and you can have two strings going into one inverter. So, for example, you'll have some panels on the west side of your roof and some on the north or some on the west and the east. So they're a string each. They go into one inverter. There is another type of inverter called a microinverter, which means every single panel has its own little mini inverter. And those work a lot more efficiently, but they're a lot more expensive. So they're usually recommended in instances where there's a tricky roof, so panels are going to have to be placed in all sorts of strange spots rather than in a one line or one batch. Or if there's shading issues, so that some of the panels are going to get some shading, then you want to maximize their output with a microinverter. Or um, if you've just got a very small roof, you just want to make sure you get the absolute maximum amount. But because they are more expensive... A lot of suppliers will just quote you on a string design with one big inverter. The inverter usually sits somewhere near your switchboard. And once it's done all those things, kept us all safe, managed the voltage, turned it into AC power, it goes through your switchboard. And that's the point at which you use it in your home. So you're using it straight from the roof effectively. So when it's daylight and the panels are generating power, you're getting the power for free straight from the roof. If you don't use it, it goes through your smart meter. And unfortunately, you do have to have a smart meter if you want to get solar installed. So that is a slight additional cost, Um, but it's something that's being rolled out anyway, so people are having to do it anyway. Um, It goes out of the smart meter if you don't use it and out into the grid and someone else will use it. And you get paid a feed-in tariff for the power that you send out to the grid. So as we all know, we buy power and there's a rate per kilowatt hour. And it's the same with what you sell to the grid, but it's a lot smaller. So similarly, if you can use it when the daylight is on the panels and you're generating, you're using it for free, you're going to get the maximum savings.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Those... So that's,
1: that's the basics. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's fantastic. That was actually a really great explanation. So. Was oh, it? Good. <laughs> and we're going to um, talk a bit more about batteries later in, uh, in the episode so that um, people can understand how those feed into the system as well because yep. I know that... That for us, um, we were explaining before we jumped on air, um, you know, my husband and I have been looking at solar for us and one of our big debates is do we bother feeding back into the grid or do we just try and create a standalone system? So, um, so yeah, really keen to learn more about that. But firstly, I wanted to, in terms of actually figuring out how much you're going to need, you know, how big a system you're going to need, how do you recommend people go about uh, determining that for their homes?
1: So the first thing we usually do is ask what your average daily usage is. So a lot of people that call might say, um, oh, well, my bill's about $400 a a quarter or something. But actually, the figure you want to look at when you look at your bill is your average daily usage, which has a KWH, stands for kilowatt hours. uh, And that's how much power you're using in the home, because it varies depending on your retailer and depending on how much you're actually paying for electricity. So have a look at what your average daily usage is. And then you're going to be able to calculate, of course, some of your usage is always going to be at night. For example, lights generally aren't when the sun's shining. Entertainment is usually in the evenings. Uh, Your fridge runs all the time. So there's going to be some daytime use. And then a lot of people are in the habit of using things like a dishwasher at night, putting it on before they go to bed. So there'll be a bit of behavior change to maximize the amount of power you can use during the day. But roughly, if you had a system that matched about 60% of what you currently use, your average daily usage, then that's kind of a fairly realistic goal to try and shift that much power and use that much power. Having said all that, though, a lot of suppliers are now just recommending getting a big system because of things like batteries becoming more readily available on the market because of electric vehicles presumably being um, more popular in the coming years. I just read this morning that Google Maps are actually putting electric vehicle charging points on their maps now so it's becoming quite mainstream so within the next 20 years yeah we'll probably see a lot more electric cars there'll probably be a lot more batteries so a lot of suppliers are just saying look you can fit x amount of panels on your roof just go for that so there are ways to try and calculate but actually if we want to sort of future-proof our homes if you can afford to it's worth putting a bigger system on and a huge component of the cost of an install is going to be the labor so rather than get a system and think, oh, well, in a few years' time, I'll add some more panels, it's, it's more cost-effective to just put a bigger system on now.
0: Okay. And, and so, yeah, because I think that's the, one of the mental kind of disconnects is that this is something that if you don't have a storage system on site, you are literally going to be only able to use it during the day when the sun is on it because it's a direct conversion exercise from the sun into your house electric network. So it's interesting that conversation about behaviour change and to be able to maximize the use when it's actually generating power versus just keeping your habits the same um, and basically you're then just getting discounted energy, really aren't you because you're feeding stuff back into the grid at a you know at a at a rate of some sort, but it's not necessarily always um, equal to the rate that you're paying so I think that's a really interesting conversation. The other thing I encourage people to look at when they're doing say a new build and they're putting in new appliances where they're renovating you know their kitchens and those types of things is to look at what they can do to lower their energy use overall and how they can design their home to really, you know, lower their heating and cooling costs and all of those things that we have in houses that are big energy suckers, you know, what can we do to really reduce those energy um, use overall so then we're not having to feed the house as much power in the first place. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. So the conversation should always start with energy efficiency. However, it's not very sexy and it's not very visible. (laughs) So people don't really engage with energy efficiency. So sometimes it's sort of like you hook people in by going, oh, you're interested in solar. And have you thought about insulating and draft proofing and your windows and all those things? So, yeah, it's um, it's behavior change is always very challenging. Uh, but like you say, even if people didn't change their behavior, they still will have a discount. It just means the payback period is a lot longer. We work closely with the ATA, the Alternative Technology Association. They did some modeling last year on a home that was exporting all the power to the grid. And it was, had a five kilowatt system, so about 20 panels. Uh, and they still estimated that the payback would be under nine years. So that was without using any power on site. So even with the low feed-in tariffs, you can still reduce your bill and you should still see savings, but yeah, the maximum savings are going to be from using the power. And when we say the sun's shining, I'm sure you know this, but um, just for your listeners, um, it doesn't have to be a sunny day, just means daylight. Uh, In spring and summer, we have longer days and sunnier days, so we do generate more power. But even in winter, even on a cloudy day, you'll still see some generation from your system.
0: And so the smart meter that's being included into the meter board's what, what does that actually physically do? Is that something that the energy companies use to see the translation between power out and power in or what does that smart meter So do? So the
1: smart meter does a few things. One of them is that it records your data about, well, there's a couple of different ones. One, it's about half hourly and one, it's 15-minute intervals. So you can under, you can have a much better understanding of your power because most of them have a portal that you can log in and see your usage. So that's for, from the energy company's perspective, with or without solar, they want to be able to monitor very accurately your usage and when it's happening. And then they can keep a track of peak demand, you know, when there's certain times of the day that everyone's using lots of power. And then in terms of the solar, exactly, it, it ma- manages how much you're buying from the grid and how much you're sending out to the grid. Gotcha.
0: So, Lucy, can you tell me a bit about the difference between panels you know the in terms of um you know I know in my own research there's different costs there's different longevity, repair requirements are different in terms of the actual lifespan of the of the panels um, It seems that most of them are being made in China these days you know what what do we need to know about the panel selection itself to make sure that we're getting the most efficiency um the most efficient sort of basically power sucking out of the sun as much as we can yeah.
1: So, um, as you said, most of them are made in China. We do get questions from people about, you know, I want German made or Austrian made. There aren't any currently made in Europe. Some components are made in Europe and they're patented in Europe, but most of them are actually put together overseas in Southeast Asia. Um, there is There are a couple of American companies now as well, but they're mostly made in China. But of course, as with anything, you get what you pay for and there is a difference. So there's a couple of things. One is that So the panels haven't changed very much. They're about uh, just under a metre wide and about 1.6 metres tall. And they haven't changed much in the last 30 years except the wattage. So we used to see, even as recently as sort of seven years ago, most panels were 170 watts. Then they, as they kind of improved the technology, they got to about 220. And now most panels, most kind of standard panels are 270 watts. And you can get panels that are 360 watts. So again, if you had a really small roof space and you wanted to make sure you could get the maximum amount per panel, you might want to pay a premium to get those panels. And as research and development and the market changes, probably within a few years, the 360 watt panels will become standard. But at the moment, it's 270. And you might find that companies are trying to get rid of old stock of, of say, 220 watt panels. doesn't mean that they're poor quality. Just And if you've got room to put an extra couple of panels, you're still going to have the same amount of generation. The other thing is the performance output warranty. So it's industry standard for panels to be warranted for 25 years. And that means that they will still be operational at 25 years, but there will be a drop in percentage. Um, and so the standard rate is a 1% degradation per year. So even at 25 years, they should still be operating at 75% efficiency. A lot of the new panels actually degrade a lot slower than that, less than half a percent per year. So they should still be the ones post 2000, allegedly, will still be operating at 92 percent efficiency after 20 years. So that's pretty good. And that's another development that's changed. And that's where you might see the difference between the cheapest chip systems and the more expensive systems panels. The cheaper ones might be operating at 70 percent at 25 years. The more expensive ones might be operating at at 90 percent at 20 years. So um, that's where it's worth reading the fine print. The other thing is, of course, the inverter. So as I said, the inverter is the brains. So that's where you really want to make sure you're getting a good quality system. And again, looking at the warranties and making sure that there's no fine print that says, um, you know, it's going to explode after 10 years. But the the industry standard is five years and many suppliers will offer a a five year additional. So 10 year warranty. But some of them will have conditions on that, such as you have to get it serviced by them every year for $500 or something, so and that's not worth it. So as with all our major appliances, it's probably a good idea to have it serviced every couple of years. However, as many of us don't do that, there are ways to make sure the inverter is working properly without getting someone out. If you got someone out, they'd probably take the casing off and just make sure there was no dust inside. But the other thing they'd do is they'd just check it, So and you can do this yourself. On our website, on the R Energy Future website, there is actually a PDF that you can download, and then you take it out to your inverter, And you look at the numbers and do some calculations and you can tell if it's working efficiently as you would expect it to. So that's tool number one. A lot of the new inverters actually have apps that go with your phone that you can check them. You can be at work and be very smart about how much power you're generating back (laughs) home. So there's lots of ways to know the system is still running efficiently. But, yeah, checking the panels, checking the performance output warranty and reading the fine print and checking the warranties on the inverters and making sure there's no conditions to those warranties.
0: That's fantastic. So that performance output warranty on the panels, it should tell you what that drop-off percentage expectation is over that that period of time, yep. should it? Okay.
1: It should, and that's a question to ask if it doesn't.
0: Okay. All right. And yeah, the 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 research that I've done, the inverter seems to be the the main thing in terms of making sure that that's where you spend, you know, actually buy quality because like you say it is the brains that's sort of maximizing the potential transfer of Power from the panels to your system. So, so I think that that's a great a great way for us to be able to check that. And I'll pop a link in the blog for that PDF that you mentioned, so that the UA sure. community can check that out as well. So, yeah. Um, the, I find though that most installers they're just telling you, you know, this is a five kilowatt system. This is a, you know, it's like a they they sell you the system rather than saying to you, okay, well, it's this many panels at this amount per panel, this amount of output per panel. So how, how do homeowners, I suppose, start that conversation of, hey, mate, you know, you might be a five kilowatt system, but I've only got a west facing area of roof that's this big that, you know, do, they, do you recommend that homeowners wrap their head around the science of this a bit and sort of think about how many panels sizes they might need based on their roof and what that might mean in terms of their inverter and their panel choice? Or do you think it's just in the case of finding decent installers and knowing those kinds of questions to ask about warranties and, you know, panel output and those types of things?
1: Um, Well, it's a bit of both. So as I said, I'm a bit of a nerd and I like reading up on things. So if you like to engage in data, and you know, if you're kind of person that does a bit of research before you make a major purchase, then by all means get engaged. And that's also where you can start analyzing your own behavior in the home, figuring out where you're using what your highest energy users are in your home. And you can make sure you're going to maximize your savings. However, having said all that, I just want to see solar on as many roofs as possible. So if someone wants to spend the money and is pretty comfortable with the supplier, then just go ahead and do it because (laughs) it's it's worth it. And the other thing is from an environmental perspective, which, of course, that's what our organization, our our goal is emissions reductions. Um, So, of course, energy efficiency is number one, but putting more renewables into the grid. So not just generating renewable energy for you to use in your home. If you don't use it, it will get used. And it does mean that there's more renewables out there. So um, from an environmental perspective, if you want to get solar, then it's it's definitely a win. In terms of saving money, that's where you probably do want to do a bit more research and actually make some calculations, get a bit of an understanding, get your kids involved. <laughs> because we have, I have a colleague who has teenage daughters and he says that their hair dryers and hair straighteners use loads of electricity. <laughs>
0: yeah you need to incentivize that energy reduction don't you yeah. <laughs> I feel like that we're on tank water and uh yeah just trying to incentivize our kids to not have these really long showers is <laughs> it's a big yeah. exercise so I can see the same thing translating with energy use generally in the home as well so now with the inverter itself how big is it like what you know in terms of the physical size of the thing
1: Yeah, so for a string design inverter, the big one, it's about the size of a big backpack, Mm -hmm. um, but it's a lot heavier. I mean, it's sort of at 18 kilos or so, so it's quite an industrial piece of equipment. But yeah, kind of can't really show you on the screen, but roughly the size of a big backpack. Some of them are kind of deeper, some of them are wider, but that's a good estimate.
0: And where did you say that needs to be located?
1: It's usually near the switchboard. If uh, if it can't be near the switchboard, then sort of as close as possible just means you're maximizing the efficiency because obviously the longer the power has to travel through wires, the, the you know there's always going to be a drop off, but um most in most homes it's placed by the switchboard on an external wall. So if your switchboard is inside, then it might be on the nearest external wall. And it needs to be somewhere you can see it. So sometimes people ask if they can, you know, stick it up in the roof, but you want to be able to look at it. You want to be able to keep an eye on it.
0: Is that just to make sure that it's not getting any dust on it or anything like that? or?
1: Yeah, it's so that you can keep an eye on it, but it's also so that if there was an issue, then someone else or someone externally could come and find it.
0: And does it, if it's being placed externally, is it waterproof or does it need to be built into some housing of some sort?
1: It is waterproof, but you wouldn't sort of leave it exposed to the elements. It's usually kind of under an awning or on a veranda or kind of in a, a doorway.
0: Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, can we um, have a look at and and a chat about batteries? Because this, for for me personally, I know is a big conversation. For a lot of my regional UA community, it's a big conversation as well because – This idea of actually going completely off the grid and being self-sufficient is something that's quite attractive. Um, And even for some homeowners in suburban homes, I know that this is something that a lot of homeowners seriously consider. They've just had enough with energy companies, full stop, you know, and they just want to basically look at what they can do to make their own home self-sufficient. I know where we live, we experience so many power outages, it's ridiculous. So um, I think that the infrastructure in regional areas probably just isn't as um, maintained and upgraded as much as it is perhaps in suburban and city locations so that's an attractive idea for us to just not have to worry about that at all because when we've got tanks with pumps being run off power and you know we lose water as well as electricity yeah. you know when we lose electricity what do we need to know about batteries in terms of their storage you know the these you know how much capacity you should build in you know what what types of systems you should look at how much money you should spend you know those warranties and those quality issues Give us a lot yep. down on batteries. There's a, there's
1: a <laughs> that. In terms of going off grid, if you were setting up a new rural property, for every kilometer away you are from the grid, it's about $10,000 to connect. So, for example, if you're four kilometers away from the nearest grid connected property, then it's going to cost you $40,000. If you've got $40,000, then setting up an off grid system is a good idea because you can get a pretty good system with a good backup supply that's going to last you a few days. For that budget. If you're already connected to the grid, um, the case is a lot lower. So uh, obviously you've already got that infrastructure there. And the other thing is that with solar, if the power goes down, your solar goes down. With many of the batteries on the market, the same thing happens. But there are uh, there are two or three, I think a third one has just announced it, that have islanding. So they have the option to, one of them, it just does it automatically. You don't even realise the power's gone down, you'll just start draining your battery. Another, you can set it so that it just powers the lights in the fridge, for example. It won't, you know, it will turn the, the TV off, but it won't, you know, and it won't run the dishwasher, but it will just give you enough power to kind of get through. Um, and then the others, yeah, mainly they just go down when the grid goes down. So that's the sort of options in terms of the grid going down. And the other thing, of course, is the amount of storage you need to get you through. I don't know how long your power outages last for, but if it's only a few hours, then you probably don't need a very big battery. Um But there are, if you wanted to go off grid, then you're gonna need enough power to get you through maybe three or four days in winter where the solar's not generating very much, which means you need quite a lot of storage. So that goes back to that question about what's your average daily usage on your bill? And then you'd work out, well, what would that be times three if my battery is never gonna get fully charged over a a kind of a really dreary period of weather in winter? And it's about $1,000 per kilowatt of storage. So a 13 kilowatt hour battery is about thirteen thousand dollars right and that's a ballpark yeah and that's on top of your solar system yeah so it means that for most people the it's, it's still sitting at around twenty thousand to have a battery let's say say 13 kilowatt hours of storage so that's quite a big outlay and if you're only kind of trying to if it's all about sticking it to the man <laughs> <it's still laughs>
0: Your own personal rebellion at $20,000. Yes.
1: <laughs> that's quite a bold statement.
0: <laughs> it, but it also means that from a
1: social justice point of view, if, if you are connected to the grid and then you go off the grid, then people who can't afford solar and batteries still need to pay for the grid and it means the cost of the grid will go up for everybody else. So from a sort of an ethical standpoint, going off grid is not, is not actually very responsible. <laughs> but the other thing consider is that during summer you're going to generate more power than you need and more power than you need to charge your battery so that excess solar just dissipates doesn't get used nothing happens to it whereas remaining connected to the grid means all your excess power goes into the grid and is more renewable energy so again from an environmental perspective it's quite good to remain connected to the grid um so if you wanted to do that so for, for example in your situation where you do have some power outages then i would say um but put a system on so what used to happen, and I think you mentioned this in your email, there used to be advertising for battery-ready systems. And what they were were systems that the battery got charged from the panel, so the DC power went into the battery, because batteries are DC, and then the remainder of the power went through the inverter, converted to AC to be used. So you needed a battery-ready system so that it would divert that way. But what now most of the batteries have is either their own inverter or an inbuilt inverter. So sometimes it's a separate, sometimes it's kind of part of the battery, so that you can just have a regular system set up, DC from the panels, AC into the switchboard, and then either get used or go to the battery, converted back to DC, which of course you do lose a bit of the power every time you do that, but they're they're so kind of technologically advanced that it's not a huge amount. And then excess of that all goes out to the grid. So you don't need to buy a battery ready system anymore. You can, add, you can add a battery to an existing system. So hopefully batteries will come down in price in the next two or three years. Yep. Uh, you know, and we love the early adopters because they're the ones who drive the market and bring those prices down. They also help the technology get researched and developed much quicker. Um, but yeah, if, if you don't have 20,000 sitting around but you do have enough for the solar, get the solar, add the batteries later and get the batteries that have the islanding so okay. that if there's a power outage for a few hours, you know you've got that.
0: Okay. So in terms of that silly question, but you're saying that if the power goes out, the system goes down even if you've got that battery storage unless you've got the islanding. Is, is the power driving the battery's ability to be charged? Is that why the system will go out? Like where does the – if you've got a battery system, where's the power connection that's supporting that coming in and what's it physically driving? So that when yeah, it drops so it, out, it's the-
1: basically what the distributors do when the power goes down is they cut off your inverter. They turn your inverter off remotely, essentially. So it's not going to go through the inverter and to the battery, is why.
0: Okay, but in the standalone systems, does the battery power, power the in the when you say you've got those island systems? Is it the battery then that drives the inverter?
1: So, with those islanding systems again there's there's one that just does it automatically, so your your when your inverter goes down, your home just knows to draw from the battery okay. only gotcha. and then there's where you actually have to flick a switch and tell it
0: okay all right it's um yeah it's a a whole myriad of jigsaw puzzle pieces isn't it to bring together in terms of that energy use and then thinking about the seasonal kind of demand that you have on the home. So, you know, for example, you know, obviously there's not only the weather conditions, but then seasonally you might use different, you might have different power requirements. So, you know, I know um, homeowners will see a fluctuation in their energy bills based on whether they live in a cold climate and they're doing more heating during the winter months or they're living in a warm climate and they're doing using more air conditioning during those hotter months. So I can imagine that sort of understanding this on a location Specific basis becomes really important in terms of yeah. that process.
1: Definitely, and it's that whole thing of people say, "Well, what size system do I need?" and "What's the average?" You know, we're a family of four. What's normal? It's a kind of a how long is a piece of string. So there's a few considerations. So some houses have gas as well as electricity, so they might have their hot water and/or heating and cooking on gas. So obviously, their electricity usage is going to be lower. But if they're getting solar, then I would encourage them to plan to phase out the gas and have an all-electric home. So we've, um, we've been promoting using reverse cycle air conditioners for heating and cooling. I know in New South Wales, a lot of people aren't, don't have mains gas, or in Sydney at least. So um, it may be not as relevant. But certainly in Melbourne, a lot of people have gas heating. And they also have reverse cycle air conditions that they use for cooling. So we're encouraging them to use it for both. You could set it on a timer if your home is well-insulated and draft-proofed. Your home could be nice and warm or nice and cool by the time you get home from work, and then you don't have to run the power, you know, run the system at night to cool or heat because the home will keep it nice and cool because of insulation and draft proofing. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, We're so just going to turn it back to that conversation. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's yeah. It's so. It's it's not only the the. I mean, the, I mean. This is the beautiful thing about the UA community. They're listening because they're planning. You know, to renovate or build their homes. So they've got this unique opportunity to get this right based on, you know, sort of where they live and their budget and those types of things. It's really, I think, understanding how all of these things can impact and affect each other and your investment, I suppose, in creating a well-designed home that works for the orientation of your site and that is energy efficient in terms of passive solar design and decent insulation and and all of those types of things then will will support a lower spend in your you yeah. know investment in solar because you'll not have as big energy requirements as you would have potentially otherwise if you'd not thought about those things in your design so it yeah. is it's really interesting to see how the flow on effect of some of those early decisions can have in terms of those budgetary costs for these systems that you then bring into your house so
1: yeah, and as you said, there's there's so many variables in terms of the aspect of the house and the orientation of the windows and things like that. That I see these kind of kit homes that be, are being advertised, and they'll say it's an eight-star energy-rated home, and I think how can you say that if you don't know which way it's going to face? Because if you have lots of west-facing windows, of course the home's going to get really hot. You know, it's, it's a, so I, it's a it's a it's false advertising really when they can make claims like that because you have to decide where it sits. And where the windows are and all that stuff which is why someone like you is so great to advise
0: <laughs> in terms of the size of the batteries and those you know how how big do these batteries sort of get in terms of the physical space that they can take up you know is it realistic so, in a suburban home to think about using batteries and having a space at the end of your garage or do they need to go externally how does all of that work
1: no so there was uh, a couple of years ago a regulation was um floated about having them ha- that they couldn't be attached to a residential dwelling And thankfully, that got kicked out, mainly because in Germany, the only restriction was you can't have them in a bedroom. (laughs) So obviously, they're considered pretty safe, and there's quite a big uptake there already. So just to use the Tesla Powerwall as an example, it's about the size of a double bed, not quite as wide as a double bed, and it weighs 102 kilos. So it's a big piece of infrastructure. Usually, it would go on an external wall, and it goes sort of upright. So as long as it's a a strong, weight-bearing, structurally sound wall, it should be okay. You shouldn't be too concerned about theft, obviously it's a big thing for people to steal, but I would suggest it's on the inside of a of a fence rather than on display. Yes, <laughs> and then there are much smaller ones. there are ones that are sort of more like the size of an inverter, like the size of a big backpack, but they have smaller storage capacity, and there are much smaller ones, sort of like a cube, sort of a thirty centimetre cube, and they're designed for stacking, so you buy one that stores 3.5 kilowatt hours and then you add to it. So it's kind of a a modular system.
0: Gotcha. Okay. No, that's fantastic. I think that's given us a really good understanding of the componentry and sort of how they all work together and what are the considerations in terms of thinking about creating the best system for you and your location and just your space requirements as well, I can imagine, in terms of what physical space you've got. And that's part one of our interview. Didn't Lucy share some fantastic information there? Now, in the next episode, which is coming out in a week's time, I'll share part two of our interview. In it, we actually dive into how panels need to be positioned on your roof in terms of orientation and in their pitch, so in in how steeply they're positioned uh, so that you can really understand how to drive higher efficiency from them. We also talk about the requirements for your roof structure itself, whether you're using tile or metal so that you can put a solar system, solar panels on it. And we talk about what to do if your budget is tight and you can only afford a small system and then also how to find a reputable installer uh, and the kinds of questions to ask them and some of the information to really look for in assessing if they're going to be a good fit for you. We talk about new technologies as well. There's lots of solar tiles that are available on the market and uh, Tesla are waitlisting for their solar tile or their solar panel roof system at the moment. So I asked Lucy some advice about how those systems work and what to be considering and whether it's you know worthwhile looking down the track at having something like that. And Lucy also shares some fantastic Resources to help with learning much more about solar energy and getting support and advice in your decisions. She's got some great websites to share, also some forums that you can dive in to get really good quality advice. Now, meanwhile, head to the show notes or to the blog on Undercover Architect. Uh, you'll see there how to get in touch with the Moreland Energy Foundation Limited and to get their help in assessing whether solar is a good fit for you so that you can access the Positive Charge program and get that independent support and advice in finding a reputable installer and in getting uh, good quality quotes for your planned system and I've got loads more resources there as well I did lots of research to prepare for this episode and so I found some really fantastic resources in my hunt and, and those are included in the blog and in the show notes. Now, meanwhile, please remember to share this season with your friends and family who might be planning a renovation or new build and share this podcast generally. I am so passionate about providing access to great quality information and professional expertise. I really want to teach you how to get it right in your future family home. So if you haven't, please head to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast so you always know when a new episode is fresh and ready to hit your ears. And also please rate the podcast and leave a review. Wherever you're located, this makes a massive difference to who iTunes shows the podcast to and whether they can uh, determine if it's relevant for them or not. Okay, now I have a lot of resources that I've mentioned in this episode so I'm going to pop those in the show notes for you as well so you can head there uh, if you want to do any further investigation yourself or grab some information from those resources. As always my sincere gratitude and thanks to you and thank you so much for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.